0: All right. Well, I want to welcome everybody tonight. Glad to be back with you on a Wednesday night. Uh, We've had pretty good success when we've not been here in person with um, streaming the Wednesday night services. So I've got uh, set up here. So if you're joining us online, welcome. Um, If you miss something I say tonight, you can go back and watch it later. Uh, The sad thing is if you've been watching online, this is me live. I don't get to edit any of this. It just comes out how it is. So, um, We want to welcome y'all and welcome our online folks as well. When you came in from Got Questions about the 77s and Daniel, uh, we'll keep all that handy and go through it, but your big packet, what that is, that's the lessons that we missed while we were away. Uh, that first lesson on... Uh, the resurrection, I did not teach it online because it actually happened right at Easter. We had an Easter message that Sunday so I skipped it and there may be some portions of other ones that I skipped but they're all there for you to go back and read and pick up anything that you missed. Where we're at right now, if you've not been with us online, we've been talking about the Bible and the Bible's divine origins, how we know the Bible's true and ways to defend the Bible if we are, you know, confronted by an unbeliever that says, well, the Bible is just written by man. They're going to want some way to know that the Bible is authentic. One of the ways that we can prove the Bible's authenticity is prophecy. Now, prophecy is not unique to the Bible. You can call a psychic friend. You can... Uh, read Nostradamus, whatever. Prophecy is not unique. What is unique to the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy by these charlatans, these um, um, soothsayers, soothsayer. you know, they'll come out every so, year, so many years say, the world's going to end on such and such a date. The date comes and goes and we're still here. So, what we find unique about the bible is every prophecy in the bible has either been fulfilled or is going to be and the fact that there is fulfilled prophecy lets us know that future prophecy will be fulfilled as well now somebody with more time than me counted up that there are 191 messianic prophecies in the old testament These are prophecies that told about the coming of Jesus. When Jesus Christ came to earth from the time that he was conceived to the time that he ascended back to heaven, he fulfilled all 191 prophecies. Now in our last lesson, which is lesson 60 in your packet, we talked about prophecies concerning his birth, his ancestry, about uh, John the Baptist leading the way and about his work here on earth. So tonight in lesson 61, Messianic Prophecies Part 2, we're going to pick up and look from the time of his suffering and death to his ascension. I hope we we'll get through the whole lesson. Some of us are going to be treading some pretty deep water. Uh, I wish Eddie Randolph was here to help me. He he can usually help me tread the water pretty good, but We'll see if we can get through it. The first area we want to look at is the suffering and death of Christ. If you're familiar with Isaiah 53, the whole chapter is about the suffering servant. Um, let me read read this to you and begin in Isaiah 53, verse 2. And I'm reading from the Amplified. It says, "For he." The servant of God grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he has no stately form or majestic splendor, that we would look at him, nor handsome appearance that we would be attracted to him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of pain and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not appreciate or esteem him. But in fact, he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows and pains. Yet we ignorantly assume that he was stricken, struck down by God and degraded and humiliated by him. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pressed for our wickedness, our sin, our injustice, our wrongdoing. The punishment required for our well-being fell on him, and by his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wickedness of us all to fall on him instead of us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before her shears. So he did not open his mouth. After oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation that is, his contemporaries, who among them concerned himself with the fact that he was cut off from the land of the living by his death for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke of death was due. His grave was assigned with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet the Lord was willing to crush him, causing him to suffer. If he would give him... I'm sorry. If he would give himself as a guilt offering an atonement for sin, he shall see his spiritual offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall succeed and prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he shall see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of, of what he has accomplished, the righteous one, my servant, shall justify the many, making them righteous, upright before God, in right standing with him. For he shall bear the responsibility for their sins. Therefore I will divide and give him a portion. With the great kings and rulers. And he shall divide the spools with the mighty. Because he willingly poured out his life to death. And he was counted among the transgressors. Yet he himself bore and took away the sin of many. And interceded with the father for the transgressors. Now in, in this prophecy there are. Twelve aspects of of the coming Messiah's suffering and death, we see here that he was rejected, he was a man of sorrow, he lived a life of suffering, he was despised by others, he carried our sorrow, he was smitten and afflicted by God, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was wounded for our sins, suffered like a lamb, died with the wicked, he was sinless, and he prayed for others. And if you'll see the references here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, see all of the fulfillment to all 12 of these predicted uh, aspects of the Messiah. Now, before Jesus came to earth, before, before he died, before Christians started using Isaiah 53 to preach about Jesus and use it as an apologetic it was taught that this was about the coming messiah but those religious leaders didn't want jesus to be made out as the messiah you'll remember after jesus rose uh, the soldiers were paid off to say that his body had been stolen and and it says up until that day the jews still didn't believe that that was the messiah so after christians began using this the rabbis began teaching that what Isaiah 53 was talking about was the suffering of the Jewish nation and you'll even find in some places that chapter 53 is the forbidden chapter sometimes their scripture doesn't even include it because it points to Jesus and that doesn't fit the Jewish narrative but if you look at Isaiah in context anytime he refers to the Jewish people He refers to them in the first person plural. Because he is talking about himself as a part of the nation. But any time that he speaks about Messiah. Such as here in 53. He uses the third person singular. He, his, and him. This has to be Jesus Christ the Messiah. This has to be who Isaiah was speaking about in this 53rd chapter. He's not speaking about the troubles to come on Israel this is the Messiah whether you accept it deny it or not there's no doubt that that has to be about him and it was all fulfilled in the life of Jesus but if you don't want to uh, go along with Isaiah 53 there's other places Psalm 22:16 talks about uh, the piercing of his hands and feet Zechariah 12.10 about the piercing of his side. And Psalm 22.18 about the soldiers casting lots for his garments. An amazing prophecy. It does not stand alone. It's elsewhere in the scripture and it was all fulfilled. Next we see if if you want to turn to Daniel 9. We may camp out here for just a moment. Daniel, he was praying for his people. His people, Israel, were in a time of suffering. And I may actually go over this a little bit closer uh, during our prayer meeting tonight, but let's look on over uh, to about verse 20 of Daniel 9. Daniel prayed, and the angel Gabriel came and gave him an answer to his prayer, gave vision in this prophecy well it wasn't known until after the fact it wasn't they didn't realize it when when daniel was writing this Um, but this predicts almost to the day the time that messiah would be cut off or killed Uh, Verses 24 through 26 says, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. Now here's where we head to deep water. Uh, your translation may say 70 weeks and 62 weeks. Well, we know, of course, that he's not lit- talking about a literal seven-day week here. But, um, That can mean a week of years. It's kind of a, to us it's a strange way of thinking because we say a week, we think seven days. We we talk about a year, we talk about 365 days. But in this uh, culture, it was slightly different. If you look at Daniel 9 verse 2, we see Daniel has been reading uh, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's prophecy um, said that the uh, Babylonian exile would last 70 years. So we know that he had been meditating on years, and when uh, Gabriel brought this answer, we know that years was still the context because of the other context with it. Um, But anyway... Daniel knew that what he was praying about Israel being in captivity that it comes from Jeremiah that there would be 70 years of Babylonian captivity now here in in your lesson there's an explanation on how this all figures up it's really kind of confusing the way it's here in this material and also they used the accepted date of A.D. 33 for the crucifixion I'm not going to argue that I wasn't there, I didn't have a calendar, I wasn't there to mark it down, I believe it was closer to A.D. 30 when he was crucified if you look at when um, Pilate and all those were in um, power at certain times for the Passover, and you figure it backwards. Jesus was most likely born in about four BC. I remember I shattered somebody one day telling him that Jesus was not born December twenty-fifth, one AD. You know that's not when he was born. It was it was probably four uh, BC. So uh, that's where I've got this handout from. Got questions about the seventy-sevens in Daniel. Uh, If you read down, it's about the fifth paragraph that begins that Nebuchadnezzar had Jerusalem dismantled around 587 B.C. Um, We see that, according to the prophecy, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there would have been seven seven seven-year periods and 62 more seven-year periods, which figures out to 483 years, until the Messiah would, sh- would show up. So after the 62 seven year periods, which would be 483 years, Messiah would be cut off. Now what we have to remember is the Hebrews and the Babylonians both in this context, their year was a lunar year. Our year is 364 and a quarter days their year is 360 days. Every so often, they have to throw in a month to catch up with our year. So, um, Persian Emperor Artaxerxes he gave the order to rebuild Jerusalem. It was either in 445 BC 444 BC. But if you take that general area. 445, 444, and you add the 173,880 days, which the 483 years is, I hope, I hope you're not as confused as I am, but that brings you up to A.D. 30. Jesus, according to the prophecy, the Messiah would show up, present himself as Messiah to the nation, and be cut off or killed. Sometime around A.D. 30, when he presented himself to Israel on Palm Sunday and he was crucified on Preparation Day and rose again from the dead on Sunday, he fulfilled that prophecy. Uh, Going on further, it says within one generation of the crucifixion, the temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed. That was in A.D. 70. So if Jesus died in A.D. 30 to A.D. 33, you're about 40 years later to the destruction of the temple and the city. Now, bottom line, there's, there's really no 100% way to know exactly when the decree was issued to rebuild Jerusalem um, there's some debate whether to use three hundred sixty day year or 365 day a three hundred sixty five day year. that 's one of those things that scholars debate. But the point is, Daniel, over six hundred years before it happened, wrote this prophecy down and hid it to the year to the month. Possibly to the day. And that's not something he did on his own. He did that through divine inspiration of God. Now, we have, um, we have weathermen that can't even hit a prediction correctly. You know, last week we thought, well, um, Friday, Saturday, it's 70-some-odd percent of rain, and it was clear and hot both days. So how could someone 600 years before an event know that a man would come and die during a particular time? Only by inspiration of God could that happen. Now regarding the resurrection, uh, Psalm 1610, David writes that you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Uh, Peter used this in Acts 20 where he quoted that, that uh, talking about Jesus, he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that uh, his place, one of his descendants would be on the throne seeing what was ahead he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to the grave nor did his body see decay Jesus' body did not decay it was there for three days the prophecy was fulfilled and we see that Paul used arguments such as this because when he went to the synagogue he knew the Jewish listeners there would understand the prophetic nature of this psalm and other parts of the Old Testament I'm sure he probably went to Isaiah 53 if you remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch the eunuch asked said does he speak of himself or And Philip said he opened up the scriptures in Isaiah 53 and told him about the Messiah. These people knew that these were prophetic in nature. Um, Paul and the other apostles, they knew that these skeptical Jews took these as predictive and used that to um, witness to the people. And we can do that we're going to come across skeptics all the time they're not going to believe the bible is what it says it is they're not going to believe that it was written by divine nature but using this and relying on the power of the holy spirit we can't open up scriptures to them psalm um, 110 talks about the ascension David even predicted the ascension of Christ, writing, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now before I realized that this was a Messianic prophecy, I thought the Lord was telling David that I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He must have been fighting the Ottoman Empire. Hello? Hello? Okay, moving along. uh, In Matthew 22, Matthew 22, Jesus applied this passage to himself. And Peter applied it to the ascension. It says, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that's where Jesus sets today. He sets at the right hand of the Father, and he is overcome, but one day all of his enemies will be trodden under his feet. We're close on time, but I really want to go ahead and finish this. Number one, I'm a I'm a statistics nerd, so let's let's run through this pretty quick. Um, talking about prophecy and the Messiah. We talk about it. It's, it's the unique aspect of biblical prophecies is that those prophecies have come true, and they are very specific. Um, psychic friends, Nostradamus, et cetera., et cetera, soothsayers, as Dennis said. they make these predictions and they're very generic. Uh, probably 99.9 percent of the time, they don't come true, and if they do come true, it's by pure coincidence. These have all come true, and they were very specific. And were made hundreds of years before Christ was born. And if you think, well, maybe there's this person that, that read all these prophecies and said, Well, I'm going to make myself appear to be Messiah. There's things he didn't have control over. He had no control over the when and where or how he would be born. A person can't decide they're going to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem and be laid in a manger. He had no control over how he would die. He would not have been able to do miracles, and he would not have been able to raise people from the dead. Regardless of what you hear today about people lying on graves and resurrecting them, they cannot do it. Only Jesus could resurrect these people from the dead. It is statistically impossible that all these events, all 191 events, Prophecies would have come together randomly in the life of one person. Mathematicians, again with more time than I have, they say if just 16, now remember we're talking about 191, but if just 16 of these had been fulfilled in one person, the odds are 1 in 10 to the 45th. That's 1 with 45 zeros that is a quattro decillion if you're taking notes. One in one quattro decillion odds that that would happen for 48 of the 191 to happen would be odds of one in 10 to the 157th. That's one with 157 zeros which is 10,000 Quinquagintillion, it's got a lot of Q's in it. That's a number, I, I started to make a slide that had a number with all those zeros. I don't know if it would have fit on the screen to be big enough to read, 157 zeros. And now you've, you've heard me uh, use this illustration before, but we're bring it down to just eight of the prophecies. For eight of the prophecies to be filled by chance in one person, the odds are 1 and 10 to the 17th, which is 100 quadrillion. That's the same odds as if you took the state of Texas, covered it in silver dollars, uh, I can't remember, it's a few feet, okay, two feet deep. The entire state of Texas covered in silver dollars, two feet deep. You take one of them, you mark a black X on it, you blindfold a man and you tell him to find that silver dollar. That's the same odds that one person could by chance fulfill eight of the 191 prophecies. Ain't God big? Those are numbers that we cannot, cannot fathom. But not only is it statistically impossible, it's morally implausible that these would happen. God is not going to let someone just by chance fulfill what he meant for Jesus. That's one reason there's so many prophecies someone cannot um, control where they're born or how they die But God would not allow someone. He cannot break a promise. When he promised that Messiah would fill each one of these, you could take that to the bank. That was his promise to his people. He was not going to allow that to be thwarted by chance. Mathematician Blaise Pascal stated that, but to prove Jesus Christ, we have the prophecies which are good and valid proofs. Now remember, everything in Scripture we know is handed down from God to man. It is written by inspiration. And there were eyewitnesses to uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection. So we know these are good and valid proofs. And those prophecies being fulfilled and truly proved by the event indicate the certainty of these truths and therefore the truth of the divinity of Jesus Christ. People can deny the divinity of Jesus. They can deny that he um, was the son of God. Most people anymore won't deny that he actually lived. They will admit that Jesus Christ was a human being that walked this earth. You can at least get them that far. But they won't admit that he's the son of God. But he was. He was confirmed um, Acts 2:22 says he was a, he's a god or he was God's man confirmed by God's signs Again the biggest problem you're going to run into is people if they admit that the Bible's true that Jesus was God in the flesh that he was who he says he was that means he's all they're all of a sudden accountable to God if I can say, well, your standard is flawed, if some part of the Bible is wrong or or something just doesn't fit in, then I can prove the whole thing wrong and I can live how I want to. But if it's true, if the Bible's true, if it's what it says it is, if Jesus is who he said he was, we've got a problem. We've got a sin problem that we can't fix. And the world would rather live in their sin fighting against Christianity than accepting the truth. That's where we have to open the law, let the conscience do its work, let the Holy Spirit convict, and pray that those would come to Jesus. All right, do we have any questions or comments? Uh, Hopefully not about big numbers, but anything else will be good. Yeah, all right. Um, all we can do is present the facts. You know, we we have um, documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls, whatever, that have dated to older than manuscripts we had. Uh, like I said, Isaiah 53 was taught messianically before Jesus, which can be proven. And then afterwards they changed how they taught it. Um, there there's some of these lessons in their in packet. It talks about different evidences for the Bible. But bottom line, we can't convince anybody. Now, we we might can throw information out and say, this is true, you can't deny it. Um, one of my favorites is uh, prove, um, prove God and the Bible are all true without using the Bible. Okay, I'll do that if you prove physics is true without a physics book, you know. Um, we can throw all this, all this evidence, but it's up to, I believe that's up to the Holy Spirit to say, yeah, this this is true. Uh, because people have their minds made up that they're not going to believe. I mean, a, an autographed copy of the Bible wouldn't, wouldn't satisfy that. So that's where we... We give them the information, but we can't, we can't force anybody to believe. That's, that's the sad part of it. That's where the Spirit has to come in and do the convicting. One argument is that the the Bible, they had stuff added to it later on. That's where our old, old copies, we don't have the originals, but the copies are so old within two or three generations of their originals. Whereas other ancient uh, texts like Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad, their copies are six 700 years after they were written and are far fewer in number than biblical copies. We have so many um, biblical documents that date to just a few generations that with just very little, uh, non-contradictory differences, say the same thing. Um, Other examples of classical Greek literature, the Odyssey and the Iliad, those You can't say that. There are much later copies and far fewer. Now, I don't know how they agree with one another. But we teach that in school as classical literature. But then we have this that's more accurate and proven that we won't say is real. So um, you'll hear an argument also that, well, the Bible was written by man. You can't trust it. Well, do you have a birth certificate? Yeah. Who wrote it? The doctor? at A man. Yeah. You know, we take other documents penned by the hand of men and trust them, but we won't take documents penned by the hand of men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as true documents. So there's always an argument. We've got to let the Holy Spirit do His work. Do the best we can to defend it, but it's still it's difficult. So. All right, any other? Blaine? I'm, mine does, too. Those are some, some very large numbers. And, uh, that, that's your homework tonight, Blaine. Bring me a paper that has one with 157 zeros. OK, all right. Do we have anything else tonight? Yeah, Bob. Yes. So he knew all these prophecies. All the letters he wrote he emphasized all the prophecies. Yeah. yeah, can you imagine? Paul said he was a, a Jew among Jews. He knew the the Old Testament scriptures as we know them probably better than anyone. And don't you know that he had a light bulb moment, whether it was on the road to Damascus or wherever, where he said that. All this stuff I've studied all these years, all of a sudden it makes sense. We see it fulfilled. That had to be an amazing, amazing moment for Paul. Now, it's great that he had studied all that because I think that made his witness that much more powerful. Because he was such a died-in-the-war Jew that, very good. That's why we can't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. All right. Anybody else? All right. We'll we'll go ahead and close uh, this session tonight. I'm going to close our live stream before we go into our prayer time. I know there can be uh, privacy concerns with some of the things we share uh, with one another that we don't necessarily want to cross the whole world. But thank you for joining us tonight for this class. And thank you for joining us online if you're there with us. Uh, we will be meeting again Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. We hope to see you all here then. And uh, as we transition to our prayer time, I want to ask uh, Ronnie and Kay if they would lead us in a hymn, and then we'll look at our prayer list.